smog has gone. We never go to war again over oil, gas and coal access. No one ever builds another nuclear power station, which means that leakage of nuclear technology to make weapons stops. We no longer have fracking, oil spills, coal mine fires. Basically, we have clear air and we have stopped three quarters of global greenhouse emissions and we can then focus strongly on stopping land clearing, which is the majority of the rest. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But can you imagine the single piece of engineering that would make all of this possible? And what if I told you that it had already been invented? I'm Roma Agrawal, and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. In this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Andrew Blakers, who has dedicated his life to an area of engineering that may hold the keys to slowing down the climate crisis, solar Solar energy. Andrew is also a part of the four-person team that won this year's Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering for their groundbreaking innovations in solar cell design and perk technology. We'll be talking about everything from the technical detail of their award-winning innovations to what it would take to shift our global energy systems to renewables and how a career in engineering might just be one of the most impactful ways to combat the climate crisis. Don't get depressed, get even. I have Andrew Blakers here with me. Um, Andrew, welcome. It's such a joy to have you here. Thank you. Could you tell me a little bit about young Andrew and what inspired young Andrew to become an engineer in the first place? Well, I was going to be an astronomer. So I took physics and maths at university. And I also took up bushwalking and outdoors activities. And you can't spend much time outdoors without realising, firstly, that it's very beautiful. And secondly, that it's under grave threat. And climate change is the number one threat. So by the time I got to my PhD, I had decided to do a twist on astronomy. Instead of studying stars in general, I was going to work on the energy from our particular star, in other words, solar energy. And uh, I don't regret at all that making that switch. And I think the world probably wants to thank you for making that switch as well. But I love this idea of kind of astronomy being about the whole, you know, the universe and the galaxies and so on. And then you kind of brought it back down to our solar system and actually to a very practical level of what's needed here on Earth. Could you tell us why solar power is such an incredibly important thing for our planet? Global climate change is perhaps the most significant threat to our civilization, apart from application of technology to global war. So leaving aside nuclear war or something equally horrible, the slow burning crisis is climate change, which is going to affect everything from top to bottom. About three quarters of all the carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions emitted in the world are coming from oil, gas and coal. And solar energy with support from wind is the only way in which we're going to get rid of dirty fossil fuels. But it's not just a way of getting rid of it. It is actually a much better system because solar energy is cheaper now than anything you can get from fossil fuels. 
So we are going to end up with a clean and cheaper and more reliable and resilient energy system once we get rid of all oil, gas and coal. I mean, just think about it. There's no more oil tankers or oil spills, um, fracking for gas, coal mine fires, open-cut coal mines, oil-related warfare in the Middle East, missiles from some horrible person attacking your infrastructure don't matter very much because you've got thousands of solar farms and millions of solar panels and a network of transmission going everywhere. In other words, you end up with an extremely resilient energy system that will produce electricity at a highly affordable price for the next 5 billion years or 10 billion years until the sun becomes a red giant and then it works even better (laughs) because the sun's even brighter. (laughs) So it's a forever technology for making low-impact energy. And I'm I'm guessing that in a million years or even maybe in a hundred years that the efficiencies of these technologies will continue to improve and... I mean, it it sounds like that kind of utopia that you've just described with regards to the energy system. Andrew, can you tell me a little bit more about your work and the work of your fellow laureates that led you to winning the 2023 Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering? I undertook a PhD at the University of New South Wales, which is in Sydney, and I ended up spending a total of 10 years at the Uni of New South Wales working as a PhD student and then several postdoctoral fellowships before I moved to the Australian National University in 1990. And I've never regretted working in silicon. Silicon is the basis of the integrated circuit industry, and it's also about 95% of the global solar industry as well. Silicon's a wonderful material. It's the second most abundant element in the Earth's crust. So we can never run out of silicons for making solar cells. We worked to make solar cells more efficient. That was the main theme of my time at the Uni of New South Wales. When we started work in the early 1980s, typical efficiencies in the laboratory were 16 17%, and commercial solar cell efficiencies were well below that. What we did was to take the efficiency over the next 20 years up towards 25%. And the way in which we improved it was to identify all of the loss mechanisms. So the sunlight coming into the silicon solar cell, some of it ends up as electricity, most of it ends up as heat. And this is kind of like a bucket with many, many leaks in it. And the leaks represent perfectly good solar energy being turned into heat. And you plug one leak and then another leak gets a bit bigger and you plug that one and there's another leak and so forth. And you've just got to keep going round and round and round the bucket, plugging leaks one after another in order to push the efficiency up. The particular uh, leak that um, the PERC cell that we won the prize for entailed plugging was uh, most of the people in the solar cell field at the time were working on the optical and electronic properties of the top surface of the silicon solar cell. So could you tell me a little bit about those different layers that we're talking about? Yeah, so a typical silicon solar cell will have a a diameter of about 15 centimetres, it's round or semi-square, and a thickness of um, a bit more than 0.1 millimetres, which is about twice the thickness of a human hair. Most people were working on perfecting the top surface And uh, we did a pretty good job on doing that. But then we turned our attention 
uh, to the back surface. And we came up with a way of greatly improving both the electrical and optical properties of the back surface without substantially increasing the complexity of processing the silicon wafer to make the solar cell. So in this way, we had a good trade-off between improved efficiency but not very much increasing cost. And eventually, the whole industry adopted this um, process. And so now about 80 or 90% of all solar panels made around the world are based on the PERC solar cell design. That's absolutely incredible. And it's so wonderful to see that huge impact that your work is having on the world. Could you tell me a little bit more about um, the other people on your team that were also awarded the prize alongside yourself? Professor Martin Green established the research group at the University of New South Wales in the late 70s. Uh, I was his second PhD student. And Jinwa Zhao and Awa Wang were later PhD students in the late 1980s. It was a, it was a real team effort. So each person contributed in, in various ways. And there were other people who um, were not mentioned in the prize but were part of the, the team. You know, thousands of people have contributed to bringing solar energy to where it is today as the global juggernaut that's knocking off oil, gas and coal out of the global energy system. Uh, what does it feel like to win? Well, it was um, a big surprise when I got a phone call from Lord Brown. Um, in this day and age of scams, of course, I thought, oh, this is, this is a scam. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he assured me it wasn't. And I, I, of course, knew who he was and uh, quickly worked out that it was actually an extremely <laughs> unlikely and pleasant surprise. And I was absolutely delighted to share it with um, the other three people. Now, as an engineer, what I often find is we get quite tied up with our existing way of doing things or the, you know, the infrastructure, the way we design stuff is so tied in with how things have been historically. So considering that the energy systems of most of the countries around the world are so married to coal and oil and gas, how do we make this monumental change to solar? Well, it's, it's obviously very difficult. The fossil fuel industry, just like that other smoking industry, cigarettes, has its tentacles in everywhere, in governments all around the world. Of course, there are many countries that do not have significant reserves of oil, gas and coal. And for these countries, harvesting their own solar and wind means that um, they get rid of having to pay for imports and they end up with more local employment, not less. Paradoxically, Australia, which is uh, the world's largest coal exporter and about the second or third largest liquefied natural gas exporter, is the global solar pathfinder. And this is an accident of history. So we've had um, a government for the last 10 years which has been highly non-enthusiastic about renewable energy and, and in fact, uh, thought that we had too much. But we had an open market for electricity, which meant that anybody, any rooftop solar or solar farm or wind farm could connect to the grid. And so we ended up with um, a vast number of people putting solar on their roofs and solar farms and wind farms that rode right over the top of government policy and preferences and led to the amazing situation where Australia is now generating twice as much solar energy per person as any other country. It's it's really quite remarkable how very far ahead Australia is. And Australia is also a top five producer of wind energy per person. So if I was um, 
queen of the country and wanted to convert my country from an oil and gas-based energy system to a solar-based energy system, how would I do that? I would open energy markets to unsubsidized competition from any source, very preferably with a carbon price to tilt the playing field properly and properly compensate for the massive cost of greenhouse emissions. And the government's role is to get out of the way of private companies and individuals doing their own thing for rooftop solar, solar farms, wind farms, but to be in there to ensure that there is adequate transmission to bring the new solar and wind power to the cities and adequate storage. Could you just tell me a little bit about what storage means and what the transmission lines mean? So again, we're still looking on this large scale. What what does a large scale energy storage facility look like? So storage is absolutely essential, of course, for an energy system based on solar and wind. The sun doesn't shine at night and the wind doesn't blow all the time. You absolutely have to have storage. There are several large-scale energy storage techniques and all of them are going to be necessary. Batteries win for short-term storage of seconds up to an hour or two. Pumped hydro wins for storage of a few hours to a few days. So those are the two large-scale electricity storage systems and we need both. You also need transmission so that when it's sunny and windy in one place, It might be dark and gloomy in another place with no wind. So you need the transmission to move the energy around to where you need it and also simply to bring the new energy from a wind farm located here or there into the cities. In the case of Britain, most of the best wind is in the north and the better sun is in the south. The large-scale storage from pumped hydro is also in the north. So it's a very obvious transmission solution for Britain to put large-scale high-voltage DC cables down the east and west coast. And this is off-the-shelf technology. There's nothing mysterious about it. you just got to invest in it. And this is exactly the role of government in order to rapidly move from something, small amount of renewable energy to 100%. And you think that's possible for a country like the UK to be running 100% on renewable energy? Oh, yes. <laughs> Britain doesn't have very good solar. It's too far north for that. In summer, it's good, but in winter, it's really not very good. Mm. But Britain has access to the Irish Sea and the North Sea. And here you have absolutely world-class wind resources. Britain can contribute vast amounts of uh, relatively low-cost offshore wind with some onshore wind and some solar in the south. Um, The other thing that Britain needs to do is to strongly connect to the rest of Europe. And the reason for this is, uh, even though it might be a wet, windless week in Britain, it might be windy and sunny in Italy. Mm. Next week, it might be the opposite as the weather system moves across. If you try and go 100% in Britain alone, you'll pay twice as much for your electricity compared with doing it at a European level. So um, what Europe has to do is put dozens of high-voltage DC cables through the Alps. And in, in general terms... North Sea wind will go south and southern sun will go north. And um, most of the pumped hydro sites in Europe are in the south. So the south will provide not just solar energy, but also balancing storage. Yeah, so this is okay. So the idea is that we're collecting 
energy from different parts of the world, from different geographies. We store them in different places, depending on your infrastructure and the availability of these batteries and reservoirs. And then we also need these cables, which is proven normal technology to transmit that power round to the places that require them at any given point in time. That's right. So Britain is already connected to Norway with some undersea cables. It's uh, not at all difficult for Britain to also to connect to um, Netherlands, um, France, uh, North Africa, Spain. So you end up with a grid right across the European continent. You know, one of the wonderful things about connecting like this is that you've all got to get on. You've got to work together because if you cut off mm. somebody's solar power um, in your day, they'll cut it off in your night. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great way of you know, working together. Now, th- these high-voltage DC cables are off the shelf. They're not particularly expensive compared with the cost of generating the energy in the first place. you just got to go out and do it. I like that attitude and I, there's, I can see so many parallels with the process of engineering where you have to work as a team, you have to support each other, communicate with each other and that's the only way innovation and creativity happens and wouldn't it be great if um, our world powers could do the same. What do you think the future, what is the next frontier in solar technology that you're hoping to achieve? Kill oil, gas and coal. Mm. We already have everything we need to do that. In my country of Australia, uh, we have a government target of 82% renewable energy by 2030, and it would be easy to do that by 2026 or 2027. The next step is to electrify everything, that's transport, heating and industry, which doubles or triples electricity demand. And it's just a matter of going quickly. So solar power based on the silicon solar cell, will continue to fall in price for the rest of the 2020s. But it's already cheap enough to do the whole job at a highly competitive price. So I reject utterly the notion that we need new technology. We don't, except in a few corners. Mm -hmm. We could do with better electrolyzers to make hydrogen atoms for the chemical industry. We do need a large scale up in methods of producing synthetic jet fuel. Yep. And a few other um, things like that. But for 80 to 90% of the global greenhouse emissions, we have everything we need already at the right price. Future technology improvements will simply make the price even more competitive. I was expecting you to say that we need to work on the next silicon chip or the next material or something. So it's really fascinating to hear that it's actually more about people and policy and kind of getting on with it. What is your biggest frustration with the speed at which this is all happening? What, what is the reason that things are slow? Fear. Uh, there is widespread fear of, uh, um, among people whose livelihoods depend on the existing system that they'll lose their jobs mm-hmm. or that they'll lose their status in society as a, a big oil company boss or whatever. There's other fears. Uh, Oh, if we allow solar panels on rooftops or allow lots of solar and wind energy into the system, the grid will collapse. And to these people, I say, no, come and have a look at what's happening in Australia. We are showing that it's not hard, it's not expensive, and you get a highly stable grid with reducing electricity prices. In the case of Britain, it's just mind-boggling to me how slow things are happening in Britain in terms of new renewable energy generation capacity per person. 
it's quite obvious what Britain has to do, invest in large-scale offshore wind and the transmission cables to bring it into the cities and pump hydro energy storage in Scotland and connect strongly to Ireland and to the continent. It's off-the-shelf technology. It's so straightforward. I love that you've created this incredible um, case study for the rest of the world. I think it's really inspiring. What would our world look like if we got rid of this fear that's holding us back? Well, it'd be good and bad. We'd still have a war in Ukraine, but Ukraine would have a reliable electricity supply because it's impossible to knock out a solar wind-powered electricity system. No, No matter how many missiles, you can't blow up millions of solar panels and thousands of wind farms and 100,000 kilometres of transmission line and and all the rest. It's just really, really hard. Um, So that's the downside. Human nature hasn't changed. But the upside is smog has gone. We never go to war again over oil, gas and coal access. No one ever builds another nuclear power station, which means that leakage of nuclear technology to make weapons stops. We no longer have fracking, oil spills, coal mine fires. Um, we never dam another, another river for hydroelectricity. Um, you know, pumped hydro is entirely away from rivers, so that's a different, uh, different technology. Basically, we have clear air and we have stopped three quarters of global greenhouse emissions and we can then focus strongly on stopping land clearing, which is the majority of the rest. Oh, I, I'm just speechless almost because this sounds incredible. It feels like we have the engineering and the technology to allow this to happen. So now it's a matter of holding each other's hands and pushing our way through to implementing it. Could you tell us, Andrew, what, what motivates you to work in this field? You've dedicated your life to research in this topic. What is your motivation? Children. Uh, I have three children. I hate the idea that their planet will be less nice than the planet that I lived on. Most people have children. It astounds me that fossil fuel executives, just like smoking executives, look their children in the eye, send their children to expensive private schools, take good care of them, and are busily destroying the planet that they're going to live on. Mm. It, it is un unfathomable to me how people can have two completely divergent sets of information in their head. Love my children, destroy their planet and make money. How how does this work? Mm. I am extremely fortunate that I work in a field for which there are very few downsides. It's very hard to make a weapon of war out of solar. It's very hard for a terrorist to misuse solar. You end up with an extremely resilient forever energy system when you go solar and wind. And this means that I don't have conflict within myself when I go to work. Many other professions, and you don't have such clear-cut, this is good, with very few bad sides. And I'm very fortunate that in renewable energy, it is this way. How can we inspire more people to follow in these footsteps? Well, I think it's very important for anybody to adopt a profession that they're actually intellectually interested in if if they're going Mm -hmm. to become an engineer or scientist. It's very hard to work in something, even if it's laudable, if you're not interested in it. Um, (laughs) If you're lucky enough to work in an area that you've 
are very interested in, then it's a, it's a pleasure most of the time to go to work, apart from when you get bogged down in <laughs> admin or something like that. And you can also go home at the end of the day and think, well, you know, I, in my small way, I've helped to move the needle. But it's also very nice if the profession you choose is mostly upsides with not too many downsides. Mm. And I think that solar energy and wind energy are perhaps the largest of these one-sided professions where pretty much everything is upside. Another one could be electric vehicles, you know, getting rid of fossil fuel vehicles. So, so there are many professions that will lead to a much better outcome than the one that we're tracking towards at the moment because so many people are afraid to change, afraid to say, we're just going to do this and we're going to do it quick. I think this is one of the reasons that I love talking about engineering and science to young people. So I spend a lot of time trying to inspire young people to just open their eyes to the possibilities of engineering and technology. So what, you know, what would you say to a young person that's scared about their future on this planet and what they as an individual could do about it? Don't get depressed, get even. Now, some people get involved in political activism and there's a very important place for that. Other people get involved in subversive things like inventing new solar and wind technologies, damaging the fossil fuel industry, for heaven's sake. These are the sorts of professions that can lead to job satisfaction, both intellectually and morally. Speaking to you has made me feel a lot more optimistic about our chances in the future. Are you optimistic? No. Um, oh, no. I'm not pessimistic. I'm, I'm neutral. Um, I mean, politics is not my trade. Mm. And it's really all about politics. When you've got a country like Britain, which is wealthy with excellent engineering and science, and this awesome offshore wind, and you look at how slow they're going, mm. still building nuclear power stations, for heaven's sake, it's going to cost three or four times the price of wind energy. And then I hear various politicians say, storage is a problem. No, storage is an absolutely solved problem through batteries and pumped hydro. Nothing mm. to invent. I just think, where do these people come from? Don't they read the briefing papers that I'm sure um, the good engineers that they have working for them write for them? And come and have a look at Australia. I mean, hop on an aeroplane, burn that fuel. It'll be well <laughs> worth doing. Come and talk to Australians. And it's just a matter of course. Yeah, of course we're going to do this. Of course we're going to be at 80 90% renewables by 2030. What's the problem? Aren't you doing it? Yeah. I think I think there's um there's an element of wanting to learn from other countries there isn't it I think that's such an important thing about knowledge transfer and humility and understanding where we can learn from other people Could you tell us your one final message that you would like our listeners to stay with after they've listened to this conversation Global warming is one of the top problems facing humanity and the solution to global warming is just sitting there waiting to be developed but the message is we've got virtually everything we need to do the job and do it mostly by the early 2030s. We do not need to wait. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such an inspiring conversation with me. First of all, to be speaking to one of the winners of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering that was shared by four incredible engineers 
involved in the research of Puck Solar Cells. So thank you so much for your time. And it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, this conversation has completely blown me away. Solving our energy problem isn't just about having the right technology invented. And as Andrew tells us, the engineering is there. The work has been done. They've even won awards for it. But engineering isn't just about making the thing. It's also about how that thing then interacts with systems and our society. And in the case of energy in particular, it comes down to the will the drive and the political power needed to put these innovations into action. But the phrase that I'm going to take away from this conversation is just get on with it. You've been listening to Create the Future. It was hosted by me, Roma Agrawal, and featured Professor Andrew Blakers, a member of the winning team of the 2023 Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. It was produced by Jude Shapiro. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists, and thinkers. We'll be exploring topics such as ethical engineering, the future of plastics, and even life on Mars. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For the innovation and the invention and development of the passivated emitter and rear cell solar photovoltaic technology, the 2023 Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering is awarded to Martin Green, Andrew Blakers, Erha Wang, and Jinwa Zhou. Please welcome your laureate.